Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Dink. Dink, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Dink. Dink, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So very well known in the sports betting world. I've spoken to some people privately and also obviously on the Twitterverse and a few other places who, if they know much about this space, they've obviously been in contact with you, heard about you. There's a lot of different stories that float around, so maybe we'll get to some of those. But for those that have been living under a rock or, or are new to this world, tell us a little bit about your your start in the game and then in terms of sports betting and gambling and just generally in the industry? Well, it started in harness racing when I was going with the, when I was like 15 and some of the older kids from the park took me to a harness track and um, I fell in love with it right away. Uh, my dad was the world's smallest gambler, so I knew about the races a little bit, but um, I hit my first bet because everybody seems to hit their first bet, a uh, show bet on it. Carmine Abatello horse, but paid two eighty to show, so uh, I profited eighty cents, and, and I was kind of hooked. And fortunately, for a while, I would just go without a bankroll. So instead of losing all my money and get dis- disgusted, I kind of handicapped just for the sake of handicapping. And by the time I got a bankroll, when I started working in college, I was actually kind of a winning player. It was so much easier to be a winning player back then, but. I met a bookmaker at the track and he befriended me and he told me about, oh, if you get your friends, I'll give you 25% of what they lose as long as you make good for their money. So I had a bunch of friends probably when I was a freshman in college who were small gamblers and I grew that sheet. It's called a quarter sheet. You get 25% of the losses back. And I grew that sheet and in two years I was – making good money, but then it occurred to me, like, if I do this by myself, I'll make 100%. And he agreed that, you know, he he understood that, and that was how I started my career as a bookmaker with about 30 or 40 small customers, mostly who were my friends. So tell me about those harness racing days. What what level of understanding or knowledge did you have back then? And certainly for the Aussies listening – who bet horse racing or harness, they're probably thinking fixed odds. They're probably thinking what they're used to or even those in Europe and other parts of the world. But back then in the U.S., was it just tote betting or tell us a little bit about the landscape? It was just into the paramutual betting at the pool. There were no fixed odds. There were no bookies at the track offering fixed odds. Um, there was 20,000 people there on a weekend. 
Now there's like 1,800. Wow. Um, the, the two tracks for Yonkers and Roosevelt, the two tracks in New York, the Meadowlands opened about eight years, no, maybe about eight, 10 years later uh, than when I first went to Roosevelt. Um, it, it was eight horses in every race. The odds board changed. Usually the horses that got bet, people would run to the window to bet more. And I learned that's not exactly the way to go about it, to find value. It's the same as sports betting. Every horse has a chance of winning. Every horse is out of price, and you have to just have no. You have to make better odds than the public, as opposed to in sports betting, you have to make. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You have to make better odds than the bookmakers when when they open the odds or see the public make errors and, and bet against what they're betting. Kind of the same thing, but horse racing is a little simpler than sports betting because there are less variables to handicap and harness racing is much simpler than thoroughbred racing where there are more variables to handicap and harness racing horses tend to run like 45 times a year pretty much on a weekly basis and you get to know them and you get to know what they can do from what post and what they can do with this driver uh, drivers are harness racing drivers are what in thoroughbreds we call jockeys so you just learn it. And it came to me pretty quickly. And like a lot of things in the 1970s, you if you're college educated, you were in the higher end of the people participating in gambling. And now it's just the opposite. If you're college educated only, you're way behind the graduate students who are going to MIT and can make models and in some cases can code and, and make bots. So... Uh, it was a simpler time back then and easier for anybody who made the effort to win, I think. So tell me a little bit about the atmosphere and the characters at the track. It sounds like you bumped into a bookmaker pretty quickly as a 15-year-old. There must have been other experiences that stand out. Well, it turned out he liked young boys. Not that we would care and not that he ever approached us that way, but I think he liked to be around young boys and, um I'm not so sure, but I'm pretty sure he was gay. Um, he was friendly. He knew sports. He just took a liking to our group of young guys who played basketball. He lived near where I live, so we actually would come down and watch some of my, my friends and myself play basketball. And uh, he took a liking to us. He was just a small bookmaker from Brooklyn, and then he moved to Queens, which is where I live. Um, never never a problem, but just a, just a good guy. And... There are a lot of characters at the track because there were so many people in so many different groups. It was a very big social scene. It was on, in Long Island. You got a lot of date nights and a lot of kids and, and a lot of money back then. So money was very loose. There were no other forms of gambling. There was no Atlantic City. The only place you can go to legally gamble was to fly a five-hour flight to Las Vegas, which no one's going to do on a weekly basis. So the harness tracks operated at night, the thoroughbreds in the afternoon um i went to college so i was going to my classes but totally neglecting any work outside my classes that was my strategy most people would cut class and then try to catch up at home i was the opposite and that kind of worked for me um I'm, i guess if i was majoring in harness racing i was minoring in poker because at queen's college we had a pretty standard poker game that would go on for about seven hours every day and people would get up to go to class and come back and get their seat. Uh, that was in the cafeteria. So I was 
inundated with gambling in my early 20s, even before that. The gambling was my other life. It was my social life. No drugs, no alcohol, a little bit of music. I would go after the track Sundays to CBGB's, which was a pretty famous punk rock club. I was into that. But that was it. You know, school, gambling, and music, that was my whole life. No, no dating, no social life. It was preoccupied by pretty much handicapping a harness and playing poker. So it sounds like, you know, in terms of Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory, you were spending probably 8, 10, 12 hours a day on endeavors such as poker and harness racing. And, you know, yeah, eight is good because there were some school that I had. I was an accounting major. I kind of went to most of my classes, but I didn't do anything outside of my classes. So um, I, I was good enough to get like a B average, but didn't apply myself. Hated my major, but knew that I couldn't get a job in anything else I liked and I thought accounting would be my life. Um, it was my life for six months and then I decided, let me try to expand my bookmaking business and sports betting business and harness race betting business. Um, and that was the last job I ever had. So at what age or what time in your life were you comfortable shifting from managing a quarter sheet to managing a, a full book? Well, a full book is overrated because I only had 20, 30 customers for to start. Uh, I think that was around 22. I was doing it while I, I, I think the last year I was doing it while I still lived with my parents. And then I moved out when I was 22. And then that gave me a little more incentive to like, you know, now I had to pay the rent, so I needed to expand my business, which turned out to be a big mistake for a little while because I, I got a group of, a fellow who was known to be an agent offered me a bunch of customers and I got some of the best gambling customers in the world. And instead of picking up money every week for my friends, I was picking up money from my friends and paying out triple the money I was picking up to these sharp handicappers. So you probably had very good knowledge of those 22 friends and and acquaintances, and then you went from that to some pretty decent gamblers. It sounds like it was probably a good lesson to learn, albeit no one really wants it, to, it to go through it. It was a lesson, but it was very close to ending my gambling career. Um, I had to borrow some money a couple of times to stay on my feet. And then I learned how there was no Don Best screen. There was no lines. You had to call for your lines to deal to your customers. And they had to call you to see what you had as opposed to another bookmaker. Um, the 22 original friends, which expanded to 40 friends, didn't have other bookmakers. But the 15 to 20 sharp letters I got probably had 30 bookmakers and were constantly calling to get updates on my line and just picking my bad line apart. And were you was that your full-time gig at that point, or were you focusing all your energy into that? Pretty much. I would stop working at around 7.30 when most of the game started and headed out to the harness tracks. And I was doing great at the harness tracks too, so everything I won plus extra was going to sharp letters. It took me about a year, a year and a half to figure out how to work them against each other. So run us through that. Obviously, something had to change. You couldn't just continue on paying out yeah, all of your winnings. I, I started to try. I try to be different. Well, now I'm expanding where I have other people working for me. I, my business was up to like 120 people, but I was doing terrible. 
Um, and when I expanded, I, I started putting up NBA basketball totals, and that really helped me. It wasn't a market place for uh, that many people dealt back then. So that was my niche thing to get customers. And I, it kind of was, and as I got a bit more wise guys, I didn't get the cream of the crop. I got the middlers and the middlers had a lot of bookmakers who didn't move the lines like I did because I was exposed to the cream of the crop. So my lines might've been higher on a game and the middlers would be taking the playback. So I was getting writing two way business, um, tilting my lines to the side that the sharp betters bet and getting more than enough buyback on the other side by the people who were doing middles. Gradually that changed as people realized they were beating their other bookmaker and losing to me. But by then I had maybe 150 customers. Uh, and, and if you get enough customers and enough wise guys, you'll find some that would bet against each other. So basically I started writing business with a lot of equity. That learning cycle, how did that develop for you? Did you have mentors or people you could rely on or was it just trial and error and, and other? I had a few people. Um, Herbie Side was uh, an older gentleman in Las Vegas who was a customer who took a liking to me. Um, and he told me one or two things to adjust. I figured out a lot of things on my own. I really didn't have an older bookmaker to show me the ropes, but I did have an older better. And he was very good to me. We were friends until he passed away at 87. He was very sharp and he would tell me stories in the old days how almost every college basketball game played in Madison Square Garden was fixed and the Lions would move eight points. And, you know, it was just learning. I absorbed a lot of knowledge from him. And through trial and error, I realized I had customers that always would lose and customers that almost always won. And as long as I could be on the side of the customers who almost always won until my business that way. I was just trying to bet against getting middled. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of times I would write business on both sides at the same time at the same line, which never happens anymore because everybody is line aware now. So there were some edges. Um, I hired only girl clerks, which was my other, you know, something novel in the market. People like to talk to girls, get rundowns to girls, flirt a little, and they were much more willing to give me a courtesy $500 bet after they talked to the girls for like 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> guys, they couldn't care less about. That was one of my things. Um, it was a good a little office. It ran very smooth looking back at it. I was one of the first two people to use penny lines in baseball. 47, 37 instead of 50, 40. Uh, everything was zero or fives back then. Like you can lay 35, you'd move to 40. You'd move to 45 if they laid the 40. I, I was willing to deal 42, 32, which was pretty much unheard of. There was a bookmaker named Robbie who still is pretty famous in this business. Uh, he's in Costa Rica now uh, as a better. And he invented, I think, that line, but I was the only other one to pick it up and really like it because it gave people who had a, a line, a choice to find a, a unique line that was two cents better in certain areas. And, you know, if that's the side they're betting, they got two cents better with me. So they would always call to see if they can get that. It worked. A lot of things worked. And, and uh, the lines got a little better that I was getting from whatever bookmaker I was using to start my lines. So um, the wise guys just weren't picking me apart. And, you know, it was, it was a lot harder for them, but 
college basketball was the biggest problem back then because the computer group started up and you know they were unbeatable and them them they started moving the market where everybody kind of knew what they were doing so it was a little harder to get buyback so it took a while till I got enough buyback to be neutral to the college basketball and just fight a number. It was, you know, fighting a number with a one-point middle is still an edge to the bookmaker. You know, people laying four and a half and taking five and a half back, it's still a little bit of an edge, especially if you're getting people at five to bet both sides when the money is just printing. Throughout the, that period, 70s and 80s, it sounds like, was all this information just in your head? Was it all in your gut and in your heart and in your mind, or were you putting hours and hours into documenting all these different elements? Or how did you go about collating it? It was by feel. It was purely by feel. I wasn't, I was more dedicated to the handicapping of harness and hockey. I, I started becoming a, a little bit more familiar with how to bet hockey. And that turned my business. That was another big plus that turned me around. If, if I used a line five or 10 cents higher than everybody else, I would get the action the way I wanted. And I was running really good. That's a sport I've always handicapped. I don't want to say it's better than everybody else, but I was very proficient in hockey. It, it took me a long time after 25 to have a losing year with betting hockey. It was just something that was kind of under the radar still. It wasn't, there were really three sports of basketball, football, and baseball. And hockey was a distant fourth, so the lines weren't that sharp. By then, I was getting season tickets to the Devils and the Rangers and going to a lot of games, giving letting my harness career come to an end. Uh, attendance really plummeted in harness tracks. The pools weren't high enough anymore to make real money. Now it's even worse. But uh, I, I switched from harness to hockey. So looking back, was that a fun time in your life? Did you have a great time doing it all it was i think the funnest time was when i was 23 going to the track and having uh only the little square customers that was easy life was good i was young the other thing i would spend some time was playing basketball i played basketball till i was 60 like six years ago um uh, so yeah it was that was my i'm going to music was important to me too but as i grew older when i started turning into my 30s i would be more involved with music and yeah i think 22 to 32 was the best time of my life so you mentioned hockey i want to talk about that and, and a lot of people today will focus on things like you know WNBA or small school college basketball or college football halftime lines and things like that was hockey back then something that you identified as a way to make a lot of money and spend a fair bit of time doing it? Yeah, I found another handicapper, and we had a lot of agreement in our philosophies of hockey. The lines were really weak back then. They changed the rules so there was no more ties, and they didn't really – when they made a line, there was, there was some mistakes they made – with regulation time, hockey betting, plus you can bet plus a half in, in regulation and probably make a decent amount of money because teams were playing for the tie and then getting the extra point in overtime. So they, they, it wasn't perfect. People who used the one, one and a half line didn't understand that teams had to win by one. So it, it, there was just a lot of mistakes early. And it, it got corrected pretty quickly, but the lines still weren't that good. 
So what were the majority of people betting back in the 70s, 80s in that era? Was it just who's going to win in the spread or was it only NFL? Or take us through a little bit about that. NFL more than college. Uh, some college football for sure, some college basketball. NFL and NBA were my two biggest things. In baseball, there were sometimes I would wait till the end of NBA playoffs and just close for the summer. And I don't think I lost any customers because nobody really – Nobody cared that much about baseball. Now it's a lot different. Uh, hockey was, you know, only people who knew this, watched the sport, or it wasn't bet socially. It wasn't bet. It was only bet by the hardcore hockey players. There was second half lines were just in their infancy. There was no in-game wagering, of course, except for second half. Um, it was pretty much the pro sports dominated. The college sports were pretty much for experts. So throughout that time, were you very comfortable with the business and how things were? What was the industry like? Was there any sense that, you know, obviously Vegas is a big specter over all things gambling in the U.S., but were you comfortable and humming along without too much inconvenience? Well, in New York City, um, for the first 17 years of my bookmaking career, I got arrested twice. The first time was one night in jail and a $500 fine with a, I think, disturbing the peace, not even a misdemeanor. The second time was one night in jail with another $500 fine. So I was operating under that guidelines. You know, people would write, sports writers would write about their bookmakers in the in newspapers. It was generally accepted that most bookmakers who weren't connected to the mob were, were fine people and, and just... You know, they weren't doing they weren't doing anything illegal because it's done in Vegas. How illegal could it be? The mob wasn't that prevalent in New York at that time. I think to me, the mob was a little overrated because something from 15 years ago, the stigma of breaking legs and threatening people. Uh, I, I think the only threats I have ever made to people is like when I was started, I, I would have a Somebody called me and go, hey, if you don't pay me, I'm going to call your mother. You know, that was it because <laughs> they were like 21 and I was like 23. And, you know, I knew their mother. So I said, I'm going to call your mother and tell her you're not paying me. That that usually got it done. I, I've never had that kind of problem. I had a few people not pay me, but I just wrote that off as, you know, operating cost of doing business. So the, the fixed games, the big bets, the boxing fights that might have been suspicious, all those types of things – may have been happening but generally things were pretty you know on the up and up didn't book boxing didn't book horses from sharp people um i had a policy because everybody would ask me for the same horse it would get around that if i could name your horse you can't bet if i knew <laughs> you gonna, i want to bet a horse oh you want to bet the florida aqueduct in the fifth race right yeah, I, I, I can't have that. I have enough on that horse. I, I took one bet on those races that were allegedly fixed. I think the customers in the long run probably lost. They they didn't get any value. Everybody had the horse. The whole city would go to the track and bet the horse, and the horse would probably pay $4 if he won, and he probably won less than half the time. So it was a losing proposition because the word was out too much, and the money got back to the track. So... Horses were something that mostly I took horses from people who could win at horses. Uh, and the people who could win, I limited them. And there were one or two people who seemed to have great information that I just told 
go better somewhere else. So there must have been a point when thing cha- things changed for you or technology advanced to a point where you had to shift or you moved cities. What was the next sort of step in life for you? Um, you always had to get better uh, as people were getting better. And then this ticker came out where you would get a update on a machine. It would make a funny noise and you know they were updating a line. So you can actually update your lines off of this ticker machine. Not a sports ticker, but a full machine that was like a, a teletype machine. And you'd rip off the page and say, oh, make the Celtics eight and a half, you know, because you see a little star next to the lines that changed. That was that was around when I first got to Vegas. I think the Boardwalk Hotel was the last one to have that little machine that, that gave the line updates around the city. Um, so it was the first time you have to see what lines were moving that most of your customers didn't have that yet. So I was ahead of that. That was one of the innovations. Um, there weren't too many things. You had a sport or you didn't get rid of a sport. I didn't do boxing. Um, I, I didn't do a lot of the niche sports that people did. I never did. I, I never did soccer, although there's really no soccer. When the Cosmos came and teams like that, when it finally found a league in soccer that was in the States. I, I wasn't involved. So I, I just took a little higher than most, but I did it on more of the common sports and the NBA totals, which really helped me. And then I was doing baseball t- totals before that was really in vogue. I was using a 10 cent line before that was in vogue. It used to be five and a half, six and a half, which translated to plus 10 or minus 30. Uh, everybody used a one, one and a half hockey lines and I would deal a 20 cent money line. So I was giving the players a little more bang for their buck, but I was still writing good two-way business by doing it. So why were the totals such a change or so important? I'm sure there's 20. Because there were a lot of, I was one of the few people who were using them for a while. And I was taking 3000 a shot and it was amazing. Sometimes within 10 minutes, I'd write 9,000 on each side. It's pretty much the same number. It was, you know, I would get the call for that from anybody who wanted it. At that time, there was rumors that, and I think somebody got arrested in Detroit for setting a phony game clock. Like 24 seconds was really 26 seconds. And everybody would bet over. And then the next day, 24 second clock was down to 22 seconds and everybody would bet under the game would last longer or shorter than the real time because the clock would move faster than, until somebody just picked up on it and blew the whistle on the timekeeper and he went to jail for like five years for kind of fixing games it's not a guarantee that if you play two or three extra minutes the game will go over but it's certainly an edge but it didn't really matter to me because I would always get buyback from the people who were middling. A lot of times I was on the same side as the sharp guys who kind of knew that little, the, the, the Pistons timekeeper was using a tainted time clock. So what was your relationship like with the gamblers, especially the professionals? Were you uh, adversarial? Were you giving, giving them a call every Sunday to have a chat? How did it go back then? No, everybody was friends. They were making money. I was making money. Um, I met the, the kosher group. I was friends with them for a while. Papa put the racetrack occasionally. 
some of the sharper guys would be regulars at the harness track when I first was going there. Older guys who took they liked me because I was a kid and the girls, the girl clerks was a big attraction and everybody wanted to know what they looked like. It, it was just, a, it was easy back then. It wasn't this competitive and, you know, I, I don't have, there was no Twitter to go on to try to get people to give me outs like Spanky does. Um, it, it was a really relaxed atmosphere. I was only open two and a half hours a day. Nobody else was open any more than I was. The business hours were 4 to 7.30 on games that started at 7.30 or 7, and then you would just close and come back the next day. Tell me a little bit about the knowledge transfer. You, you mentioned Twitter, and, and uh, you know these days there's a million different ways to get access to information, or you know even at university now doing a... PhD or data science or all these types of things. What about back then? There probably wasn't many mentors or people like yourself. Well, the mentor I was telling you about would go to the airport and have people get him newspapers at the airport and bring it to his house from each flight that came in from different cities. They would bribe the, they would bribe, I guess, the gate crew at the, at the, at the airport to let them on the plane and pick up the newspapers that the passengers left. So I couldn't do that, but my idea was to have a girl go to a store called Hollowings in Times Square and get out-of-town newspapers from them. So I had a lot of good hockey information from the East Coast, and then one of the girls who read for me put an ad in the newspaper in Vancouver for you know I, I think she saw an ad for light typing and called the person who was put the light typing ad in for employment and said, how would you like to go to an out-of-town newspaper stand in Vancouver and read to us about Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary? And the woman said, oh, I love that because my husband is a season ticket holder for the Canucks. So it was like her second try at calling the first, the first woman was like 87 years old and wasn't leaving her house to go to get newspapers. But but this girl did, and I've stayed friends with that person for like 35 years now. Um, and she was a hockey reader from the West Coast and, and uh, you know, West Coast and Canadian teams. So I had better information than anybody in hockey, and that really helped. Injuries were known. There was no way to look on an internet. There was no internet. There was no hockey TV station like they do now on DirecTV. They have a dedicated channel to hockey. Um, the, the knowledge was you had to seek it out to get advantages. There were some days that Wayne Gretzky had the flu and wasn't playing, and no one knew. Nobody had information to Edmonton sports except people in Edmonton, and it didn't spread to like the gambling world. It's amazing to think about. It's um, you know obviously crazy in this current day and age to think about you know Tom Brady not playing and no one realizing until after the game. Even it's a wild, wild scenario. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So tell me about relationships. It seems like you've cultivated many, and like I said, a lot of people in the industry know who you are and have heard about you or have worked with you in the past, and there's a lot of positive things to say. How important has it been over the years to just cultivate you know, good relationships with good people? It's really important to me because I'm still willing to learn. I think that's the difference between me and most of the gamblers of my age who either given up or, or lost it trying to do the same things that they did back then that were successful and not understanding what these kids, younger younger professional gamblers like 
Spanky and Joey Toons and Rob Pizzola and Eddie Drinker Milkshake. Um, there's a Eric Waz, Aaron Renning. I don't know, Micah, Micah Joe. They're all very dedicated into picking up everything they can and knowing whatever they can and, and using modeling and then go, oh, I can't do what they do, but they've showed me how behind the times I am. So let me talk to them and maybe I'll give them some hockey stuff and they'll show me some tricks that they know and I'll, I'll help them with outs or agents that I have known in the years and people to avoid. So it's been unbelievably beneficial to for me to know these people. I learned a lot from Matt Davidoff, who you was who was, you did a show with him and Ed Miller. They wrote a book, The Logic of Sports Betting. Uh, I learned a lot from Matt, who's an absolute genius and one of the hardest working people in the business. There's so many people who are hardworking. I hate to I hate to pinpoint him as a hard worker. Spanky works hard. Joey Coons is incredibly gifted and, and hardworking, dedicated. Um, all of them. Eddie, Eddie Drinker Milkshake has college done by April for the upcoming season and adds to spring practices. And, you know, he's just doing people who love what they do uh, and do what they love and are smart about it. And, and I learned where I fit. I know I fit below them as far as doing it myself, except maybe hockey, which I truly believe analytics will confuse you more than help you. Even now with hockey? Even now. Analytics are terribly wrong. Interesting. I'm sure... You... Expected goals is as close you get to being right, and it's still very wrong. And, and there's a lot to do. I mean, for me, hockey is still almost all about injuries and scheduling. Analytics is nice to look at Corsi and Fenwick and expected goals, but it's based on everybody being equal. You know, it's based on... A Stamco shot from 10 feet out would be the same as a defending player who never scores from 10 feet out. The expected goal on that shot would be the same, and it's not. So you have to know have, you have to know teams who can finish. Little visual things. It's still a sport that's in the very beginning of analytical success. It's like two years ago there was no spin rate and launch angles in baseball and now that's taken over it was just you know whip was like a five or seven years ago was like a breakthrough stat there's going to be a lot of hockey breakthrough stats in the next five years and that might put them everybody ahead of me but right now i still think i'm ahead of the people who just use Corsi to make their bets and the line moves based on a lot of the analytics so i can kind of anticipate where they're going to go when the overnights come out Oh, they, you know, this team has a terrible Corsi, but they, they're playing 500 hockey, and they're really, a, to my book, they are a 500 team. So their bad Corsi is, is kind of misleading. There's, they're, they've improved Corsi to, like, score-relevant course. You know, when Corsi, when the score is 3-0, is different now than when the score is 2-2. There are little adjustments for that. But even though I look at that, I think I look at that to see more where the market's going to go than to learn how to, you know, what to bet on. And that's good too. That's, I think that's what people say. Um, my specialty is reading the markets, spotting some phony moves in sports that are, you know, college sports because college sports are easy to phony up the line and have 
the buyback coming after the openers will perform in a certain way and certain offshores will get bad. And I'm always checking to see which ones didn't get bad. So I have an idea that this is not a real move. Why didn't they better that so-and-so a place? And I'm more aware that that's probably going to come back. Let me reframe the analytics question too. I think a lot of people would generally say that analytics are you know, the way to go or the way moving forward. But let me put it to you this way. Analytics in hockey now from a betting perspective versus Dink, X, and then analytics, you know, in a gambling context versus the average sports fan, Y. Do you think that generally the average sports fan versus analytics is probably not going to win overall, but against someone like yourself who may be in the top, you know, half a percent worldwide in terms of hockey betting, accumulated betting knowledge, and applying that with some of the stuff about reading markets and manipulating lines might be able to beat analytics in hockey, but the rest of us mere mortals, it's a little bit more difficult? I do a lot of work on injuries. So some games when a team is missing players and their analytics count as if they were all there. So I have things marked off as like anomalies. I think think the analytics in hockey – will never catch up to the fact that you're not counting too many things in them. You're, you're, you're making every game equal. You're making every player equal to figure out the analytics. Goalies matter, but not as much as people think. The backup goalie now is much closer to the starting goalie than he was five years ago. And then 10 years ago, the same thing. And 20 years ago, the backup goalie might have been a half a goal difference and now they're like a two percentage point save difference, and people wait to see the goalies, and then they overbet and they overbet against the backup goalie when they see that. And sometimes you don't see the transition between, hey, the backup goalie is going to be in a couple of weeks going to be the number one goalie. So get used to that. He's he's the better goalie. Don't jump on uh, on a team when he's playing. People aren't adjusting fast enough either in hockey. The goalies. There's a lot of little tricks. I think I'm good at the little tricks. And I also think that analytics work in every other sport. So hockey betters run to to use them. And I think they mislead a lot. I, Colorado, like four years ago, won the President's Cup for the most points. And, and they had horrible analytics. They were like a, a bottom 10 Corsi team. And they won the, they won the scoring t- title for, you know, most points. They, they won it by one point, but they still won it. Uh, and then they played in the playoffs. They played Minnesota, and everybody correctly bet on Minnesota because the analytics showed that Minnesota was a better team, and it worked. But it was a, a seven-game series, and I think uh, Duchesne was out for Colorado, as I recall, for most of the games. And, and, and if you can get a, a bad analytical team to have the most points of the season – I mean, you're not going to see the Yankees, Dodgers, or or Houston have bad baseball analytics. They're always going to be in the top five, and they're always in the top five in the standings. So it coincides much better in other sports than hockey. You talked about reading the market before. How long did it take you to understand market moves, watching the, the ticker or the Don Best screen, what's a false move, what's manipulation, what might come back the other way? Some of those things you picked up, was that decades or was that something that came pretty natural to you i say you pick up something every season that run differently in every sport nobody's making too many phony moves in the nfl because people know what you know people have very good power ratings on the teams 
But when in college, and the other extreme is college basketball totals. If somebody opens up a total 142 and it's bet up immediately in Pinnacle and Crisp because they're the only two people open to 147, I'm very wary that more people are setting that number up to go under eventually than actually handicap the game as a good bet and over. Um, it's not perfect, but it's it's something to watch out for. Don't don't follow the early money religiously in college basketball totals. Don't chase steam in this sport. You can chase steam more in that sport. Baseball steam when the lineups come out and somebody doesn't have a lineup up yet, but all of a sudden there's a move probably will mean somebody's not playing for the for one of the teams and follow that move because they they just got that information first. The NBA, like half the teams are questionable or probable or doubtful, and the lineups come up a half hour before the game, and that's when the real moves come. And once in a while, even though the lineups come up a half hour before the game, they'll bet the wrong side first, and then they'll fire it back on the right side. It's not perfect, but when they bet the wrong side, they neglect a bunch of little places that they would cover if they were betting the right side. So there's less movement in in non-key sports books. And you can see like, well, they didn't bet Joe's paperhead. And if they, the line if there was a real move, Joe's paperhead would have moved too. So I'm a little wary about following that move. Oh, but in this game, Joe's paperhead was actually ahead of the move, ahead of the line movement at Chris and Pinnacle. So this is a real move. Let me bet it somewhere else. So these types of things real sports bettors would know about in differing uh, variations. Have these things... Um, they should. The better ones, you know, uh, there are people that are in on these things. I'm not going to mention their names because they've been on your podcast. Um, <laughs> they help make those moves happen. The phony moves and the real moves. They have the ability to get down for serious money and have the market fooled if they want to and they do and they're, they're very good at it and again it's basically college football totals but mostly college basketball totals because the common really good handicapper is baffled by what those lines should be so do you think those things have continued to progress for example the the same things you were seeing in the late 80s are the same today or do you think there's been cycles of things in and out or yeah, everything changes. People have good seasons and bad seasons. And if the phony moves end up losing, when the, buy, if the buybacks of the phony moves end up losing, eventually the marketplace will slow down. This year has been a terrible year for wise guys in baseball. So now the line just is kind of stagnant. You have to be a good handicapper now. It's, it's, it changes seasonally for sure. It changes yearly for sure. Uh, last year... Do you know Berry Horse? Do you know who that is? Yeah. Uh, well, last year, Berry Horse won every game, so he was getting blind following, and it never stopped. And this year, right out of the gate, he was terrible. So the following diminished and then eventually went to zero, and then he stopped. So this year's baseball movement has been extremely different from last year's. I don't know how to benefit from it, but when the lines don't move, you better be doing good handicapping work because it's you against the bookmakers. When the lines do move a lot, you have a choice of running into what, what, what's being bet or waiting for an apex and betting against it. 
or doing both and, and, and arbitraging. Depends how you're set up to do this, which unfortunately I'm a two or three man operation. So arbitraging is not, you know, my, my computer's knowledge and robotics is not something I can deal with. Um, you know, I'm just not good enough to compete. So I leave the arbitraging to the experts. It's it's an interesting example you bring up with Berry Horse because it seems like to me anyway the world of betting has become much smaller and any you know false moves, real moves, market manipulation, overnighters, all that type of stuff is it happens far more quickly and the cycles and iterations are much faster and something like Berry Horse might have taken four or five seasons for someone to figure out what was going on uh, and nowadays it can take literally half of one season of blind following to the point now where. You know, it's obviously a very different uh, situation. Dr. Bob was the first guy who had this incredible following for being a Tao. And people figured out what he was using as his analytical model. And bookmakers then opened lines that he could barely bat. And he still touted, but he, his winning percentage went from like 65 to like 50. And he was kind of worthless as a Tao. It took a while for those games to stop moving on Thursday afternoon at whatever time he bat. And then, you know, for a while they were winning and you get down early and you'd win. And then it started changing and you'll get down early, you'll break out even. And then it changed. You'll get down early and probably lose a little. And eventually that died and there's no more Dr. Barb. Uh, I don't know if you know the score game of the year. Like they won 18 games in a row and, lines on major college games once a year, like a Stanford would move from two to seven because they gave that out of the lock of the year. And through pretty much blind luck, they had like an unbelievable winning streak. Uh, and then like, they lost four in a row and there was no more score lock of the year. So <laughs> these things come and go and, and everything changes. And it's just much smarter now. The people who are doing this are just so much better uh, and more organized. And, you know, they're, but the bookmakers in turn hired people to make their lines who were much better than the guys who made it when Roxy Roxburgh was making it because his lines didn't have to be that good because there were so many people gambling on both sides of any line he opened up in any number. Now it's not like that. Now also every bookmaker basically has the same number or within a half a point. 25 years ago, Caesars Palace would have a nine and the Mirage would have a seven and people were riding their bicycles down the strip and playing middles or just playing the bad numbers. And it was a whole different world, 25, 20, 1995 is when I moved to Vegas. And it was the tail end of this unbelievable, you know, line differential. There was no Donbass. You'd, you'd have guys in each casino with running to pay phones to tell you every line change. You'd be playing one against the other and doing middles or just taking the numbers that, that were not that was slow and stagnant. There are a lot of advantages that went to the hardest working people. Now the advantages I think go to the smartest people, not necessarily the hardest workers. But when you combine both like a spanky, that's when you're a superstar in the business. You work you work twelve hours a day and you're smarter than everybody else. So what advice do you have to those, let's say in New Jersey, twenty two years of age, wanting to get into betting? Not all of them can have the, I guess, the growth that you had from age probably 15 to, to 25 or 30, spending your, you know, all your days consumed in it. How do you, 
how do you talk to those people that ask you, hey, Dink, what do you suggest I should do for the next couple of years in the betting space? <laughs> like, a lot of, like a lot of the people I just described, and, and Rob Pozzola said that don't do it. But if you're going to do it, get a line out before the openers come out and bet the openers in every sport. You don't have to worry about the market manipulating. It's just much harder to to try to compete with the people who have the robots betting, beat them to the number, beat them to the number. If you're good enough to beat the opening number, you'll win. It's not, you'll, you'll have to find out if you're good enough to, if you get closing line value and open at the very beginning of each market, you're probably good enough to win. Uh, but recognize that you're not, if you lay four and the game closes three too often, you're not, you're not equipped to win betting gambling anymore. Unless you want to go through a long trial and error learning process. <laughs> I don't advise that. I mean, with my knowledge now, if I had no friend, if I, I'm sorry, if I didn't have any friends in this business, I, I would be, I would have packed it in about 10 years ago. Interesting. Except for hockey. I would still do hockey. And what about on the bookmaking side? What are your thoughts given we're in this newly legalized world across the US with different states opening up from a bookmaking perspective now? You've obviously done it for a long time. You're seeing what you're seeing. How does it How does it make you feel? This, the newest thing and the worst thing for me is they, they throw out wise guys or limit them to bets that they wouldn't want to make like $100. It's like they can't take 50 wise guys and book properly and, and spend time getting a good lineup and moving the line off of your customers who are sharp. I don't understand why... I, I guess it may be in Jersey when you open it up to people who never bet and you get a thousand customers at DraftKings or, or so. I don't know with all the competition how many people are going to bet more than one bookmaker. If you have enough to sustain and throw out all your wise guys and not think that, I think those people, when they lose enough money, will be replaced by other new people. Okay. But I don't think that's going to be the case because there's so much competition for the gambling dollar. That you, you know, and you can't throw out every wise guy because somebody will take their place. Somebody will be the smartest guy in the room, even if you keep throwing out the top three. Then the fourth guy is the smartest guy in the room, and now you'll throw him out eventually because he's the smartest guy in the room. And then you'll be throwing out the eleventh guy, and then the thirtieth guy. You're always going to have one guy who's sharper than the sharpest guy. So. I don't know how many replaceable squares you're going to have. If you get these guys betting 5,000 a game who know nothing, that's great. But I don't think that business exists. That's why 20 years ago or 25 years ago, I looked at going to Costa Rica. And and the first thing is my mom was still alive, so I didn't want to go. I'm an only child. The second thing is I like my life in the United States. I like going to concerts. I like having friends. I love playing basketball in the gym with, with the same group of guys. It would be a big sacrifice to go down there. And then where would I get my customers from? Okay, Dink is now open. There's 30 other bookmakers in my building. What am I going to get? I'm only going to get wise guys. And and that's going to be harder to beat when you only have wise guys. And the squares are all taken by the bookmakers like Chris, who've been there forever. I can't compete with that. It it seems like the worst decision would be to go. And then you have to worry about paying collects and getting arrested and not being able to come back to the States. The, the, the bad side seemed overwhelming to the good side. Um, that's why a lot of bookmakers who came from Queens and Brooklyn, where I was from, went to the Costa Rica and busted out. And now they don't, you know, 
Now they're doing something else. They're working for bookmakers who were successful. And I think I would have been one of them. And I also saw the life like you book 12 hours a day and then you go to dinner with other bookmakers and discuss bookmaking. And that, <laughs> that seemed like a terrible choice. Um, I don't think I made as much money as I might have done if I'd gone down there and built the business. But I, I think I've enjoyed my life. Um, you know, I was married for 22 years. Um, it was a good marriage. It was still best friends. I wouldn't have had that. I, I don't, you know, a lot of people were like going down to 30 and meeting 16 year old Costa Rican girls. And that didn't appeal to me either. So that lifestyle wasn't what I wanted. And I kept on going, trying to grind away and pretty much making a little, adding to my bankroll very little every year and having a nice life. And that's kind of my goal. Doesn't sound too bad. And we've, we've, left some of the Aussies and others around the world with some homework. They're trying to figure out uh, what show betting might be or Corsi or if it pays $4 on the tote, how that equates to even money. So that's uh, that's a good thing. One final question for you, Dink. What's sure. left for you? What are you looking to achieve or what's on the agenda for the next coming years? Um, I like what I'm doing. I, it's a, I like being mentally challenged every day. And since I do handicap baseball and hockey, that pretty much covers the handicapping part. I like networking with my friends to find out what they're betting and try if I can get something close to their number, I'll do that. I I have never thought about stopping. I don't want to live on the beach. I, I, I like what I'm doing. I like my life. Could be better, but I, I enjoy my life and don't want to gamble on finding a different life. I'm content to be me. One follow-up, the mental side of the handicapping and people talk about bridge or playing chess or those that are analyzing horse racing form these days with pages and pages of variables, do you find that valuable in terms of just being switched on mentally throughout like the second half of life? Um, I think it makes me live better, longer. I think being sharp makes me, I'm trying to think of my peers who don't do anything and have money. I think I'm happier than they are. I'm, I like to be challenged. I like to play games. Gambling is a, is a form of a game because you handicap and pick the team that's going to play your game for you, but the, the challenge is to pick the right team. Um, I like watching hockey. I like, I'm okay with watching baseball. I'm okay with the, the mindset of making a lot of bets with plus EV bets by following the market. I, I think it helps me live longer and, and stay sharper. Dink, I want to thank you again for your time. Before I let you go, your Twitter handle, for those that are interested in sending you a a message or a comment or something? Uh, what I do is I, I forgot. I'm glad you asked me that because I, I give out games. I'm kind of a tout, but I only tout for a charity. It's a, it's a SoCal res, thoroughbred rescue that they take racehorses and rehabilitate them and get them back into shape where they have other jobs like trail horses or jumpers or other people. It's a small horse rescue based in Southern California. And I know the people who run it. It's a very honorable nonprofit place. Um, this year, there was a very bad person doing a horse rescue and kind of made everybody who does an honest horse rescue under suspect. But this is a great place. And all the donations go right to them. And I have a, a second website. My Twitter handle is at Dink Inc. D-I-N-K-I-N-C. A phony name for my betting business, Dink Inc. And for a small donation a month, which just goes to a great place anyway, I post two or three games a day to a different secured website 
for people to see. Um, that's my giving back. I, they don't, the only thing about gambling is it's not giving back to society. But the good thing about it, like unlike most jobs, you're not taking from society. You're just battling with your peers. Um, I never thought I'm scamming anybody. There's nothing wrong with what I did ethically when I was a bookmaker or better. I think I was within the boundaries of good ethics. Um, I never had a problem with what I do and being wrong. So, uh, but, but I like to give back and the charity is important to me. And, and I've been raising like, you know, 60,000 a year for them. And we had a banner run until this month is my first losing month in like 11 especially with hockey looming. I hope to get some customers and I hope this helps me get some donors. I don't want to call them customers because I don't see a penny of this, but it makes me feel good. Sometimes when I'm sweating the scores, I prioritize the, the games that I gave to the, the rescue, the donations. Dink, it's called Dink Fund, D-I-N-K-F-U-N-D-1. Don't send a follow request to that website until you made a donation, please. Contact me on the Dink Inc. Uh, Twitter handle. That's a better place to explain what I do and what you'll get. I give out the games that I bet because I like them. I don't give out games that I took a good number and I know everybody can't get. So I try to give out the most widely available games. I'd say two to three a day. Um, and that's been a very successful. But this, I, in August, baseball is very hard and I don't give out that many games. Um, so this is our first losing month. It's not a terrible losing month, but it's a losing month. And, you know, it kind of breaks my heart because I had such a good run with this for a while. We'll see. I, I'm, this is, gives me an opportunity to plug that, and that's kind of important to me. So if you're interested, follow me at Dink, Inc., T-I-N-K-I-N-C, and ask about Dink Fund, and I will explain the rules. The donation is not a big donation. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. Um, it's the same small amount. I I don't raise my prices. Uh, it's just a good karma thing for me, and I think it motivates me to do my best job of handicapping too. Very positive, and $60,000 is nothing to sneeze at, so uh, it's certainly a very positive thing in, in this world we work within in gambling. So I wish you all the very best for the upcoming hockey season as always, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks. I enjoy doing this a lot.